Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures. And today I have a second edition of my Hispanic Heritage Month interview series. So uh, in the month of October, we're going to be talking to different people of Hispanic descent or Latino descent and just, you know, talking about their backgrounds, talking about, you know, their, their life, different things, just what we usually do on podcasts, but we're just dedicating our interviewees to people of um, Hispanic descent in the month of October. So welcome to podcast, Elvis. Thanks for having me, man. I didn't think that I'd ever make it on here. It's my first podcast. <laughs> I'm good. I'm here. Right. I know, right? And this is this is probably somewhat a long time coming because we've known each other for what? Going on four months, five months, something like that. And we're working on a separate podcast project together, which I don't know how much we can talk on, but maybe we can address that. But but yeah, how do I how do I say your last name? Is it Leon or Leone? Leon. Uh, Leon. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I was so, going to say like Leone sounds a little more Italian, not Hispanic, but Leon is like. Yeah. I mean, that's that's been, a, I don't know, uh, just a problem that I've had, I guess, uh, for a long time because I grew up with my name being Elvis Orlando Leon. Oh, it's Elvis. E Elvis. Elvis. Elvis Orlando Leon. Leon. Yeah. So, but obviously I grew up in the U.S., so it immediately becomes Elvis Orlando Leon. <laughs> got it. Yeah. Got it, but it. I was named after Elvis Presley, so um, obviously... Um, yeah, uh, that's embarrassing and all. I don't even want to get into that. Not that really. Part, but. <laughs> not, not really, if you think about it. Like, it's not that embarrassing. I mean, I'm sure your dad grew up in the 60s when Elvis was pretty much, uh, I don't know who's there now, Justin Bieber or something? Yeah. <laughs> or whoever. It, it, exactly, Post Malone or something. Uh, yeah, Elvis being Post Malone. Can you imagine uh, Elvis saying... Uh, What's it? Um, it's a celebration. You ain't nothing but a hound. Exactly, exactly. But well, yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, obviously at home, um, my parents called me Elvis. And, you know, my brother and sister call me Elvis. Oh, so. they actually call you by your name. Because I was talking about this with my interviewer, uh, the person I interviewed last week. And she was like, in a lot of Hispanic, or let me say Latino households, they have a lot of nicknames for our kids. Like they call you Shorty or Little One mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. But they just call you Elvis? Yeah, Elvis. Yeah, Elvis. That's what they call me. I, I guess, I mean, that's basically like a nickname and a first name for all in a one. You what know? about your so. siblings? Like everyone is being called your name at home. No nicknames whatsoever? Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, there's definitely some nicknames that float around, but none of them stick. I think stick. we all call each other by our, our first names. Yeah, the only interesting. Wait, you call your parents by their first name? No, 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 no. <laughs> my, my, mom and dad. Mom, actually, the only person that has a nickname in the house is my dad, and we call him Chucho, like dog. And that's kind of okay. It's kind of disrespectful. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of in a more disrespectful way, actually. But <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> no, got no, it. Chucho. Yeah. Okay, let's, yeah. let's peel back the layers yeah. and talk about your parents. And obviously, we'll obviously talk about your military career in a, in a short while. Because yeah. anytime I see you, you have to have some kind of reference to the Army. It's either a hat or like a shirt or like you're wearing camo khakis or something. Like, it's pretty uh, interesting to see how proud you are of the your service, like, you know, a number of years after that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, where, where do you want to start? 
Uh, no, let's talk about your parents first. Let's All talk right. about, I, I don't want to call your dad Chucho, so I'll yeah. call him Mr. Leon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, your mom, like, how, how did they meet? Like, have they ever talked to you about how their life was? Because from what I understand, they are both from Guatemala. Uh, so, like, kind of like growing up, did they ever tell you about when they were younger, even before yeah. they met, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, they're actually, well, my dad's Guatemalan and my mom is Mexican. Oh, your mom is Mexican. Yeah, and, and they both came to the U.S. in the 70s. Mm. Um, so then they met there in Los Angeles uh, specifically. So, yeah, they um, worked in different, like, factories. I think a lot of people that came to the country, especially in L.A., you know, one of the first jobs that you probably got was at a warehouse or factory. And as, my, as what my parents have told me is that... <laughs> It's funny because like some of these warehouses would have like seven, eight family members that all just came from Mexico because so there's always the first that arrives and gets the job. And then once he's secure, he's the plug. He ends up like, yo, I got a job. I can get you on. And then boom, next thing you know, everyone's just coming over from Mexico and Guatemala. So they both had a similar experience where like their family members, uh, someone came before them and uh, soon after they came, but they were the you know, the early wave of uh, people in my family that came over to uh, the U.S. You know, it's pretty interesting when I hear about a lot of Latinos coming to the U.S. from other Latin American countries. Reason being that I'm Nigerian, right? So I'm an immigrant myself, but like English is pretty much Ligua Franca in Nigeria. We have our tribal languages here and there, but in some South American countries like People coming over to the U.S. just know Spanish. And even though you might end up going to a state like Texas or Los Angeles where people speak Spanish also, like situations where, and not just from Latin America, other countries where they don't speak English at all. I still see these people coming here and still making their way. And 10, 20, 30 years later, they have like a life to show for it. It's like, it's just amazing. I don't know if it's the sheer will of the previous generation. I don't know if our generation has that much drive and hustle, to be honest, but what do you think it was? Do you just think like the environment was more susceptible for immigrants 30 years ago or the drive in the immigrants coming was a lot stronger like 30 years ago? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I think obviously when there were kids growing up, I mean, they, at least uh, the, the U.S. used the, the biggest propaganda machine they have Hollywood to make all of these films and pictures and, and show uh, what the U.S. was like. So I think, um, you know, and my parents are big fans of uh, cinema. So I think uh, that was probably the first calling to them like, wow, like that place looks amazing. Like, let's go, you know. But again, you know, some of the early members of our family that came over, uh, I think they spoke to some of that uh the, what you heard, you know, about the U.S. being the land of opportunity and, you know, you can, the American dream is here. So, um, yeah. So I think that was a big part of why they, they came over for sure. It is interesting, right? Because I've said it on the podcast before. It's funny you mentioned that on like a very old episode that that's like the ad agency for the country, like Hollywood. Like they, they just like the U.S. like expert marketing machine and like other people might do the job. It might be like whether that's like Russians helping out with NASA or, uh, you know, people of Jewish descent helping out with Hollywood or people helping out with different industries. They just brand it American and like <laughs> put it out there. That's why uh, is it baseball uh, competition is called the World Series. Even if it's just U.S. teams. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. But, but, but yeah, and then, so yeah, my parents uh, ended up working at the same uh, factory. It was like um, like a carpenter shop. I think they said that they used to make like 
tables and all kinds of different shelves or whatever. And um, my mom actually joined some of the um, protests that were happening at that time. And they were fighting for, uh, you know, higher wages and like health insurance. So there was a period where, you know, they were striking every day, obviously um, not working and um, their demands weren't being met. So my mom says that one day that a new wave of like employees came that, you know, we're going to replace them. And she noticed this one guy show up in a motorcycle and, you know, th that was my dad, you know, and he, he walked in, but um, they were yelling at all these new employees walking into the, um, to the uh, shop. Because they were coming to replace them. They were coming job. to replace them. So my mom said that they were just yelling obscenities at them and traitors or join, you know, join the movement. Like they're going to screw you too, all of this. And um, anyways, I guess a couple more weeks happened and uh, they didn't win. They didn't win. So, um, but they were given a chance to um, stay. So that, that was actually like the settlement. Like, hey, like you guys can fuck off or you guys can come back to work and they didn't have any other options. So they, my mom said that, you know, majority of them maybe... They split, like half of them left and the rest went back to work, my mom being one of them. Um, but she lost um, some of her rank in, in the position. So then my dad uh, was her supervisor where it would have been the other way around. Ooh. Yeah. But well, your dad who just came to replace yeah, her, he became her supervisor. It, it, exactly. Got so it. so there was tensions there, but uh, I guess... And know. they still got married? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, right? And your, your dad, I, must, I think I must... Uh, Soak up some game from him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But no, I mean, I guess, you know, they worked together, closely together, and one thing led to another, and uh, I was born in 1984. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. So you were actually born in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I was born in L.A. What was yeah. uh, growing up for you like? Were you born in a Hispanic community in Los Angeles as well? Where did you grow up? Yeah, we bounced all over, but yeah, we, we lived uh, pretty close to, you know, downtown uh, Los Angeles by Echo Park. Um, mm. There was a big Latino Hispanic community back in the day. Now it's gentrified and you can't afford to live there anymore. So yeah, story of America. Story of America. <laughs> so yeah, my, my parents, you know, tell us a lot of stories about living in that neighborhood. And uh, Echo Park is a beautiful place now. But back in the day, I guess you used to find bodies in that lake, mm. you know. So that's just uh, L.A. in the 70s and 80s was, you know, some of, one of the most dangerous places in America. Yeah. Were so, you free as a kid? Like, did your mom, knowing that the neighborhood you grew up in, like, allow you to go out play freely, like, trust you enough to know what's wrong or what's right? Or she was kind of like, you were sheltered, that kind of thing? You know, we were somewhat sheltered, but my parents did let us, like, you know, hang out on our block. And I actually grew up, well, we spent uh, a lot of years in Compton, actually. Mm -hmm. So my adolescent years to about middle school, I was living in, in Compton, California, the infamous Compton. Nice. Did um, you ever want so, to become a rapper at some point? <laughs> <laughs> no? Uh, no. So I actually lived in an all-black neighborhood. Mm. So um, we were the only Hispanic family and our neighbors. So it was two Hispanic families on the entire block. So um, yeah, we grew up there right when I think like Snoop Dogg and Tupac were at their height. So you could just hear that blasting in every uh, house. And um, my aunts who were teenagers at the time that we were living with, uh, they, they definitely introduced me to all the Compton's finest uh, MCs. So I, they definitely turned me out. And, and I've just been listening to hip hop ever since from growing up in, uh, in uh, L.A. So um, I think I still listen to a lot of uh, L.A. rap for the most part. But uh, yeah, we were there during the Rodney King riots. So we 
we definitely saw uh, the ugly side of it as I well. Later, not like 91, 92, something? Yeah, like exactly. Mm. Yeah, uh, we were there up to 97. So we left. My parents got uh, over just uh, living in just gang-infested areas, you know. We bounced around from uh, Watts, South Southgate, um, Compton. So, and that's where a lot of my family resides still. And I think my parents did I it. saw some of your other family that came over from like Guatemala and Mexico. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, we just kind of kept expanding one by one. They all came for the most part. And, um, you know, my mom and uh, my, on my mom's side and my dad's side, we had a lot, they had a lot of siblings. I think my grandma had 10 kids each. Would you say <laughs> that's a very common thing? Because that's one thing I see with Latinos in America. I don't know about other countries. Like one person comes and there's such a sense of community and they want other family members to succeed. Like they try to bring over cousins and even when they bring over cousins, you stay with your family member for like three, four years before you find your feet. But other cultures, it might just be one person that's like, see ya, you know, that kind of thing. With that sense of community only being two Hispanics in a black neighborhood, did you end up celebrating a lot of like the Hispanic festivities, like Cinco de Mayo, all those things? Like, was it a big enough crowd to hold your own, like in a black neighborhood? Did you do things in your house from the Hispanic culture? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we're still we were a hundred percent, you know, Latin family uh, on that neighborhood. And like you were saying, though, I think that's what's special about like the Latino community. You said family, and yeah, like a lot of them, you know, coerced their family members to come over, but like they all lived in the same roof. Like my mom was telling me. I mean, at one point there must have been like eight people in like an apartment building at one point, you know? So that was like the way everyone kind of springboarded into, you know, their own, their own thing. So, um, and yeah, that, that lasted years. And, and even when we did live in Compton, I mean, at, at the time it didn't seem, uh, out of weird or anything because I was a kid, but if I count how many people lived in that house, that there actually was a lot of people that lived in that house, you know? Got it. Yeah. It was like us three and a cousin and maybe two aunts and my grandparents and my mom, and you it know? it must have been fun as well it as was a kid. You it was like, a blast. You know, a lot of people, like different personalities <laughs> teaching you oh, things, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Yeah, it, it was a blast. And, and my family's big, you know, and we're all over the country now, but, um, you know, dominant in LA. So every weekend there was, uh, a, you know, this, uh, sorry, there's a, a birthday party or just a barbecue or just football Sunday or something, you know? So every weekend was an event. So, and so my family's really tight like that. At least it was back in the day where, um, we would hang out all the time, you know? And so it was a blast being a kid in that environment. Um, Nice, nice. Was was there, did you find yourself kind of like living a double life sometimes? Well, not double life, because I don't mean this in a negative sense, but in a sense where you're at home, it's like a completely Hispanic culture. You're being spoken, uh, you're, people speak to you in Spanish, you're like the food, like the language, and then you go to school or outside, and it's like American culture. Like, And sometimes it's difficult for immigrant children to like draw that line. They don't really understand. Like, Was that the case for you as well? Yeah, for sure. I was an ESL student, English as a second language. So, really? Yeah. Even though you were born here? Oh, yeah. No, That's like, interesting. Well, like you said, um, we spoke 100% Spanish hmm. at home. And I was a kid, so all we hung out with was Spanish-speaking people. You know, you know, whoever is listening to this podcast would never have guessed this because you you don't, yeah. like, you speak such good, like, English or whatnot. And it's not, like, for you to be an ESL student when you were a kid just goes to show the uh, effect of, like, your family and the Spanish culture. 
uh, growing up. Yeah, for sure, man. And and even living in LA, I mean, parts of LA is, is might as well be Mexico, you know, it never stopped. It never right. stopped being Mexico. So right. when they tell you to go back to your country, you're like, yo, man, I'm here. Like, just, <laughs> Was we never it left. Like, there, there were parts of the US that were actually, because I know, I think Texas was like Texas. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure if Los Angeles was actually part of Mexico, but part of the actual landmass of the US was like Mexico. Yeah, I think. no, California, Arizona, yeah, New Mexico, Cali Texas, a little bit it's of Colorado. New Mexico. Exactly, right? yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah, the entire South and, you know, Southwest was Mexico back in the day, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there's definitely parts in, in LA where it's 100% Spanish speakers. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> so you guys but, lived there to like 97 and then you moved. Where you moved to? To Colorado. Oh, you moved to Colorado. Yeah, we moved here. What was the difference? Like, I can imagine Colorado because oh, Colorado right now seems to someone like me it seems like pretty chill. So I can only imagine '97. There were probably like yeah. one or two cars yeah. on the road or something. Oh, yeah, seriously. Uh, well, I, I say this jokingly all the time, but it was it's partially true. Like the, the first time I saw white people was when I came to Colorado. Really? Yeah, and that's because I used to hang out with in neighborhoods that were like hundred percent. Hispanic or black, you know? So, and then with the exception of your teachers, like there was teachers that were white, but even some of my teachers in Compton were black. So yeah, I think I can remember like maybe my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Hammond, or um, he was white, but so I say that jokingly, but when you come here, yeah. it's, it's a large percentage. Yeah, uh, it's white, white country. Right? Yeah, 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 white people here. Amen. So, and uh, yeah, so that was definitely culture shock for our family initially, especially for us who um, the first high school I went to was Cherry Creek High School, which is, Ooh, you know. And a, Cherry Creek, for people who are listening, it's kind of like uh, uh, the neighborhoods, kind of like one of the neighborhoods in Colorado. So yeah. it's like uh, up there. Exactly. So, I mean, there must have been like five black people in Cherry Creek and a couple Hispanic Latino kids. And that was it. You know, there wasn't that many. So that was a, a, a weird place to be from after coming from, you know, you know California, California or Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. Where it's so, more of a melting pot, pretty diverse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you ended up like moving to Colorado with your family, uh, your family settled here, you went to high school. And then if I get the timeline correctly, like you joined the military after your senior year. Yeah, like a year after, mm -hmm. um, I uh, joined the U.S. Army in uh, 2004. What made you and, want to go into the Army, especially like, I can't remember, 2004, that was three years after 9-11, but that was in the height of when the troops were still being sent over to Afghanistan. I, and I remember you had all these movies coming out, like Fahrenheit 9-11, I was in Nigeria at the time, but there was just, Bush was in power. So what made you want to join when you knew there was an active conflict with another country? Um, I, I never had any idea that I would have joined the military. Um, I don't have any family members or any history in our family of military service, um, being, you know, our, we're first and second generation American. So I was convinced by my friend, actually, and I didn't know what to do after high school. I didn't have any plans. Uh, I just signed up to um, uh, Metro. I got accepted to Metropolitan State University of Denver here. And so I did one semester there. And I just wasn't feeling it. It wasn't for me. And I think my friend felt the same thing. So he's like, hey, I'm going to go speak to a recruiter. And he's like, come with me. I was like, yeah, I'll just roll. You know, it doesn't hurt to go hear what they got to say. And yes, as soon as we, the recruiter, you know, gave his presentation, I was, I was in, you know, like I, I definitely was, uh, sold a dream. 
and uh, I, I bought it and and signed up. But the the crazy part is that my my friend who convinced me to go, he decided not to, not go, to go, not to go. <laughs> last second, he pulled out. But by you then, you still give him shit now, like you. But well, I, I guess he ended up being a little bit somewhat of a fulfilling experience because we've talked about a whole bunch of your army stories and like seems like you had. No, some bad times, but, you know, some good times as well, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, he ended up uh, joining the Navy like maybe two years later, but uh, it, it did cause a little rift between us because, uh, you know, he's the one who convinced me to go. But uh, no, I decided to go and I, I thought it'd be a good, you know, a way to, I guess, a stepping stone to wherever I, I would go next. I, I, I think initially I knew that I probably wasn't going to make it a career, but, um, you know, uh, they offered free, uh, university like, with the GI bill and, and I, I did want to pursue education because my parents wanted me to do that. So, um, they definitely didn't want me to join the military, but, and I basically did it without their permission, you know? And so, and then I ended up, like I just told you before we, we started this recording, I got married and I didn't tell them either, you know? I oh, thought, wow. Yeah. And I must have broken your, your mother's heart. Oh, dude, she was shattered, is, bro. Is your mother Catholic? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, she 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 was shattered, man. Are you the first I, son? I am the first oh, son. Oh, Elvis. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking, man. I think it was just... I don't know. I felt like maybe I was an adult now and you saw in all the military movies, you get how, married how before you? you go. How old were you when you go? I left. I signed up while I was 18, but I didn't mm. leave in, until I turned 19. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, you have to wait like six months you or so more. so young. It's, it's, it's amazing how you, you can join the military, but you can't drink. Can't drink, no. Like, and we talked about that like in mm. one of our private conversations, like you go to a bar in your uniform, but you still have to show ID to show that you're old enough to drink. Exactly. That's crazy. Like if I was a bartender, I'll just be like, thanks for your service, man. Like, here you yeah, go. You take whatever you want. You know? Yeah. Uh, luckily for me, I was stationed in Germany where the drinking limit was 18. So mm. all the 18 year olds there were, were able to drink um, as, as Americans. So I thought that was kind of interesting that we had to ab abide by uh, local laws and Oh, the local it, laws lo really favored you. Yeah, they, they, they really favored us on that <laughs> if one. If they didn't favor you, like, uh-uh, yeah, we're yeah. Americans. Or they, they may have ruined us too, man, because, uh, yeah, drinking became a problem for a lot of people at a, such an early age mm, there. And I can see it. There's a big drinking culture in the, army, the army, too. Like, the army, I feel like a lot of things should be under control because it almost seems like an organization, at least looking from the outside, that no matter what you're going through, if it's like, you know, drinking or drugs or whatever, like, the army has that machine to shape you up kind of thing. Yeah, there's that side, definitely. Uh, you know, they, they they rule with the iron fist. I mean, you can't get, you know, um, piss hot in your urinalysis tests or or else you will be fined and punished, you know, severely in some occasions. Um, but with the drinking, I don't know, they let that one slide as long as, as long as it's it not... morale. <laughs> as long as you're not causing harm to others, then you're good. And if you... And all you need to be is, I mean, as long as you you are where you're supposed to be at on time, then it doesn't matter how much you drank the night before. So there would be people drinking all night long till like five or six in the morning. Wow. And then they would show up to the early morning physical training at 730 A in the physical morning. physical hungover? And people would be puking on the side of the road and, and super hungover. And obviously the the sergeants uh, conducting physical training that morning, they would recognize that and they would put, they would uh, work you out even harder for being a moron yeah, the night right. before. But that was the extent of that. 
So, but it was like, I guess being in a, you know, fraternity or something where the drinking culture, you know, can get out of hand. Got it. Um, but um, yeah, you know, it, well, we can get into that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. other time. Yeah. I, got, I got a lot of wild stories <laughs> yeah. about those days. Uh, let's, but, talk, let's talk about like your, your marriage. Like, why did you choose like such a young age to get married? Like, what, was she like your high school sweetheart? Like, that kind of thing? Yeah, she was my high school sweetheart. Uh, more yeah. so like, uh, how did this even happen? Like, how did you talk to her that you wanted to get married? Did you actually propose, propose? Or you guys just like went away somewhere? That kind of thing. Yeah, man, I proposed. That shit was, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Man, I had a, I bought a ring on like a three or three or four payment plan wow. and things. I went full on, man. But uh, yeah, I don't know what made me want to get married. You know, she definitely was my high school sweetheart. I don't know if it was because I wanted to, you know, stay connected with um, something or someone while I, you know, went away to uh, basic training. Um and yeah, so, and then obviously you see in the movies, like, you know, that was like a thing to do. You get married and then you go to war. Just before, yeah. 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 And I think it is just to have that, that connection to, you know, your country or your state, your city, you know, your loved ones. So yeah, maybe that's the reason I did it. And obviously I was in, in, in love with this girl at the time, but, you know, looking back at it, I, I think, you know, maybe we, we did have some issues uh, towards the end. And I think maybe the the marriage thing was to, you know, put a bandaid. It was a bandaid to maybe a bigger problem. And we probably should have broken up, but, mm. but I think we both saw, I was like, Oh, you know, we're adults now we can get married and, you know, I'm about to go to the army and, and the military provides uh, a pretty good life for, for, um, you know, married, uh, a married couple, you know, you get housing and yeah. um, she gets healthcare as well. And then if you have kids, there's, you know, they, they pay for some of the schooling and, and daycare, all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, having a family in the military, you get a lot of benefits for that, you know? So, but uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out at how, all, man. How long did you guys stay married? Six months, man. Six oh, months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So you pretty much, and your first tour in Germany was how long? Uh, well, the whole tour was four years. And oh, you, uh, So you stayed in Germany for four years? Yeah, I was in Germany for three um, and a half, and then I spent the rest of the time in Iraq. But um, yeah, so we... I don't know. Should we get into that story? Yeah, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> Might as well. As much as as that's much a, as you feel comfortable diving. That's another crazy story that we talked about. We're, we're definitely like deviating from Hispanic Heritage Month, but we can talk about this really quickly. Mm. <laughs> but um, we, um, yeah, so we got married, and I get stationed in Germany. And again, the military is going to do what they can to you know bring her over to me, so that I was getting housing set up. And I was in communication with my wife at the time. And next thing you know, I started calling her uh, like a week before she was supposed to travel and just to make sure everything was okay. And I was in the middle of training. Uh, it looked like I was about to get deployed to Iraq. So uh, I was going to be unable to help her because I was going to uh, go to the Middle East. So I was trying to get everything sorted before I left. And then she stopped answering the phone. I couldn't get a hold of her. I was calling her multiple times a day. And, you know, this is at the time when, you know, you had to buy a calling card, you know. So like 2005? Yeah, 2004. Four, you know, 2004, okay. there wasn't uh, smartphones in our pocket at that mm -hmm. time. So, um, you know, burning through calling cards, trying to uh, get a hold of her. And yeah, she was MIA. I wow. start calling her family and they don't know where she is either. So they've been calling her and they're like, and all, all her family lived in the same state as yeah, well. Yeah, here in Colorado. And mm. yeah, her 
they were calling, then they started calling me trying to find her. And I'm like, well, I have no idea. I haven't heard from her in days. And well, days turned into months. Wow. Days turned into months. Did that put some stress on you being in a foreign country and not knowing what's going on? Oh, of course, man. I, you know, I was again, going through culture shock yet again, because now I'm in Europe, you know, and I don't know the language. I don't necessarily need to know the language, but as soon as you leave the gates of the army posts, then you're just in Germany, you know? And um, so I was adjusting to this new life and yeah. And then my wife was missing. <laughs> my wife was missing and I turned out I didn't have to go to Iraq. So I had more time to, um, that time I ended up going, uh, later down the road, but I, um, had more time to dedicate to try to find her. And then I realized, um, that, um, our, sorry, I didn't realize, um, her brother. And then one day her brother called me and said that I found her. I mm. found her. This was after three months. This was months. Yeah, this wow. was like three, like four months or something that I haven't heard from her. And her brother calls me saying that he found her, and they were somewhere like in a motel room. He found her and her best friend in a motel room with like a traveling group of people. Mm. And but the weird part about it is that all the women in the group are pregnant. Damn. And yeah, all, and so I'm getting this news like, yo, she's pregnant. So not only that, that she wow. disappeared for months, I found her and she's pregnant. Like, <laughs> I was like, what? And so obviously rocked my world. I mean, definitely hit about a depression at that moment in time and questioning everything. Like, what did I do? What happened? You know, like... Hiring a group of women in the motel room pregnant? Like, what was that situation? You know, I, I was so far removed at that time from, you know, Colorado and I was in Europe that I didn't, I couldn't get all the details, you know, I couldn't, mm. I couldn't get all the details because I was in the middle of like some intense training, preparing to go to war. And so I didn't really have time to like to, uh, the military didn't allow me that time to uh, worry even, you know, um, but obviously in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life, you know, I can't, so it just, the plot thickened, you know. Um, you know, I thought she might've been dead at the time, you know, when we, we, no one could find her, not even her family, but then, yeah, it turns out she was in some type of cult, but. She was in a cult? Her brother called it a cult mm. and I can't confirm what cult this was or not, but her family referred to that, referred to it as, you know, our daughter I mean, if, has if, joined a cult. If her and a group of people, a group of girls were pregnant together in the motel room, they, sh maybe there was some brainwashing going on somehow. I don't know. And she was, they were, I could imagine like if they were all like the same age or pretty young, less than 20 or something. Yeah. Early 20s is, is what they said. Definitely. They were all young from, from what I um, heard, but I never saw her again. You yeah. know, I never saw her again. Wait, <laughs> did her family get the police involved to like rescue her from the whole thing? Like what, what was that whole situation like? Yeah, I mean, I, her parents um, owned a security company. So I think they were definitely having the authorities involved at the time. And uh, again, I, I wasn't a part of any of this, you know, which was, I can't, you know, crazy to even think back on right now. Uh, but yeah, I never saw her again. So I, we got married so in 2004. She never spoke, never wrote a letter, never reached back out to you five years later or anything? Like She, she did reach out. So mm. she, she re reached out maybe... Like four years later, five mm. years later. Wow. And there were, 
well, I don't want to get into all the details, but yeah, you don't have to. Uh, no, no, there was a moment where I did track her down, and I realized where she was, and I was home on on vacation, and I I found out where she worked, and I tried to go see her, and um, yeah, I, I she didn't want to see me, and she, I guess she hid in the back of her shop, and her manager called her, and they they told her who who was at the door waiting. And she never came out. And next thing you know, the police came. And I'm like, what? The? They they got me out of there, man. It was the weirdest situation ever. So at that moment, I'm like, all right, well, whatever. You know, it's it's definitely over. But uh, I was able to get it annulled off my record because uh, it was a special case. And uh, my marriage was uh, listed as a, a abandoned. So she abandoned me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe that's why I have abandonment issues now, you know, it's because of that. No, I'm just joking. But I... um. I uh, got it annulled from my record and uh, I never saw her again. You know, she wrote me a few times um, while I was deployed to Iraq. I ended up getting deployed in 2006 and I I did receive some emails from her uh, apologizing and and wanting to, um, you know, reunite and and she wanted to apologize in person. But at that time or at that point in my life, um, I had completely moved on and I actually even forgave her, you know, because... Mm. My life in Europe and the army, um, you know, at least the initial part of my uh, tour of duty was was great. You know, I think it was some of the best times I've ever had in my life. You know, I definitely miss those days. And I, I can't imagine what my life would have been if, you know, she would have came over and I would have just been married. I wouldn't have actually maybe had special bonds with some of the people that I served with or... Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't have had the same experiences. So I uh, 100% had moved on and I was happy the way my life turned out without her being in the picture. Uh, I couldn't see it back then. I was definitely devastated and crushed and depressed for yeah, months. I mean, and you were young. So I was like, young, yeah. Damn. And this was my first relationship. So like it was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have any other relationships in high school, you know. I was shy kid, you know, under the radar. And um, yeah, that was my first uh, relationship ever. And uh, yeah, so it, it was definitely completely heartbreaking, you know. But um, yeah, I think uh, I ended up meeting some really great um, people um, in the army and, you know, they got me out of the rut. I went full on in the, as a soldier. My career as a soldier took off. And that's the thing in the army, right? Like the brotherhood in the army. Like how... Um and, you know, I, I asked this to Elizabeth, who who is in the Army as well. Um, in the Army, is there opportunity? How much cultural identity are you allowed to um, portray in the Army? Like, for instance, like if you're in the U.S. Army, is it just, okay, you know, we're, we know you're from Mexico. We know you're from Cuba. We know you're from, well, not Cuba, but we know you're from XYZ, uh, other places, but that's it. Or do they allow people to actually form like subgroups? bonds like do they also celebrate like the different cultural events that their soldiers uh, you know the countries they're from that kind of thing or it's pretty much hey you know what like everyone pledges allegiance to the flag and all culture is american culture right now that kind of thing um <laughs> i was i was just thinking uh the only uh part of that of uh, our culture that they celebrated was taco tuesday you know that was just, <laughs> that, that was it uh, no no that was the I, good stuff <laughs> yeah exactly no unfortunately i think a lot of that you know gets uh, i won't say beat out of you but i mean you definitely have to fall under the flag and i think that's the purpose of everyone wearing the same uniform you know so they definitely say you know we're not 
you know, blue, green, white, black in here, we're all gr uh, green or army green. No, but so, don't, don't the individual cultures, like, I understand that perfectly, like, especially for an organization like the army are fighting for the American flag. But like there are cases where your culture serves an advantage, like you guys are in a country where they need your Spanish skills or you're in a place where you, because of your cultural knowledge on you understand that situation better, that kind of thing. Like, do you think the army would be a better place? if they recognize some of that stuff or you think that the cultures are just so many that it might just be all over the place so that kind of thing yeah it's, it's definitely difficult i mean obviously uh, when i was in the middle east you know uh, if you spoke arabic then yeah of course you were used but i mean you were used to you know be a translator and uh, and to i mean your purpose there was to help with the aid, aiding, you know, the, the killing of insurgents, you know, so that that's how your, uh, I guess your background and knowledge is, is used is to gather intelligence and, uh, you know, I guess cross, cross some of these people off the list. How <laughs> cross some of this, that must be a military term. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but you know, but even too, man, like even with me, uh, I was Leon like the entire time, mm. oh, my whole life. But when you get to the army, you're Leon. Mm. And if you try to correct them, they're like, Leon, fuck that. You're Leon, mm. you know? So uh, I don't know if it's a way just to kind of simplify things. Obviously the other like uh, Latino and, and Hispanic uh, soldiers, like we would all call our, each other by, you know, appropriately. Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone else, I mean, you, you're, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one thing you lose is you start losing a little bit of your identity, I guess. Except uh, on Taco Tuesdays. Except on Taco Tuesdays, <laughs> yeah. So, that, yeah, they always had, like, different, like, uh, the cafeteria would be, like, Italian Wednesdays, Mexican mm. Tuesdays. So that that was as far as... Uh, it uh, went. It went, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, at least that was like, you were this young kid who yeah. went to like all these countries like Germany, Afghanistan, obviously weren't on vacation in those countries. How was it like for like, I've interviewed a bunch of military people on the podcast before, but you specifically, like particularly in 2000, 2004, 2007, that was must have been like a tumultuous time for like American troops in places like Afghanistan. Like you did like part of your four-year tour, six months was in Afghanistan. How was that like for you? Um, yeah, it was actually 15 months, 15 months in Iraq. In I never, Iraq. Yeah, I never Oof. went to Afghanistan oh. and uh, 15 months is one of the longest deployments uh, you can have uh, in the military. So at, at that moment in time, um, a lot of um, regiments and, and battalions were being stop lost and that meant that your contract... That's a real thing, right? Yeah, your contract was involuntarily extended. So my, my contract was three years and yeah, I ended up doing four years. And that, that was because it was the height of the war. It was the height of the war and recruitment was low and they were taking anyone and everyone. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of people that probably shouldn't have been in the military for sure. Yeah, I even know like for uh, immigrants, they had like a Mavni program where I think they've discontinued that program. But I think that was like the height of it, like the mid 2000s. Yeah, oh yeah. There was, you know, international people from all over the world, man. Um, but uh, yeah, I met people there from, you know, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans there, you know, straight from Puerto Rico. A lot of them didn't even speak English. You know, wow. they were going through, they were going to English school. English school. Yeah. Wow, they were in there. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, there was people with uh, prior uh, records that <laughs> that were allowed in. That's that, funny. Uh, so you needed a waiver to, um, to uh, join the military at that time. And 
there was always like, there was weird rules. Like if you had visible tattoos, you couldn't join the military, but that went out the window too. Like you can get a waiver for that. So there was a lot of people, the military bend the rules when recruitment was low and we were at the height of the war. So everybody like, was it's allowed. Pretty, it's pretty interesting. Cause like where I come from, like, and people might attribute like different reasons for it. Like getting into the military is super hard. Like there's never a shortage of people. Now, some people might say because in a country like Nigeria, there's not a lot of economic opportunities. So one of the few ways you can actually not only earn a livable wage, but also have some prestige in the society is by joining the military. So maybe that's what's driving up the recruitment numbers. But I see that in America for like the greatest country in the world. Why don't a lot of the citizens want to defend it? Like, why is the military, like, like the military is now doing like esports and all these recruitment tactics just to bring in teenagers. Why are people not voluntarily going out there to fight for the country they say they love, you know? Yeah, man. Well, this place is complicated, man, you know, <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of individual freedoms and rights. And I think we have the right not to join the military, you know, True. and... We, we have, uh, I think only 1% of the population has, um, has joined or is currently serving, is currently serving um, in the military. Uh, why, why I say that, like, I take it back to, you know, like the 1600s, like in the days of like horses and, you know, where people fight with swords and all that brave heart kind of shit. Like people like, you know, you go back in Rome, it was like a privilege for you to lead a Roman battalion to go to all Greece, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I don't really see that. But again, like you said, you know, it's a very complicated uh, uh, response. And, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe one way to, to, to prop up recruiting is to tell the Latino mothers and other immigrant mothers that, hey, we have some culture in here. <laughs> That's how they can, get, I know. They can yeah. get people in there. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure the military's changed a lot. I mean, uh, I got out in 2008, you know, late 2008. So it's, it's been, you know, over you know, almost 15 years, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure it's changed a lot. I'm just kind of painting a picture of that time frame, 2004 to 2008. And uh, yeah, a lot, the standards have changed. They are, they're always changing, you know, but at the same time, I think back to the re how recruitment was low. I mean, there was a lot of controversy to that war, you know, there's a lot and still is, you know, then Syria happened soon after. And, um, but yeah, I mean, we definitely, the U.S. destabilized that entire region, you know, and when all the facts started coming out, then I think that turns people uh, off you know, from, from going. And I mean, I know it turned me off when I was there, you know, definitely being in the middle of, you know, the desert in Iraq and realizing like, there's nothing here, you know, like what is the importance of this like property or land that we're on? And you can't really ask too many questions, you know, and, uh, but, you know, as the months and months passed, you just are, you just, it's hard to comprehend being in war, you know, and seeing all the, you know, death and destruction and, and deaths. And, you know, I, I lost friends there. Uh, I even had a, a, a pet dog and she was killed too, you know? Like it was just uh, uh, just life, man. Life is incredibly fragile in, in a place like that. And, and you realize at the end, like, what, what the hell is it all for, you know? And- Gives you some perspective. Oh, 100%. And, and obviously we know that, uh, I mean, there's still some troops there, but- it's we're, we've been there 20 years now, you know, and mission was not accomplished. Depends on who you ask. Depends on who you ask. Yeah, a lot of people made a lot of money um, during that time. 
um, period, Halliburton and all these other uh, big companies, security companies like Blackwater, uh, no longer called that. But uh, yeah, there's uh, definitely a lot of controversy um, surrounding that time period and, you know, and still all the, then the next war, whatever that it's going to be. Yeah, I don't think wars are going to be physical anymore. The way they're fighting wars nowadays would probably be more like cyber propaganda, election interference and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. That well, is modern warfare. But anyway, you, you picked up a hobby, right? Like when, when you were in the military, you picked up a camera for some reason and started like... Yeah, uh, I think... Your documentary skills kind of thing. Yeah, I think during that period, that's when all the, like the new, um, I guess, toys were coming out, like the iPod. The iPod came out and, mm. and you know, we were all young and had a lot of money to spend. You don't spend any money really when you're in the military. It's all spending money. Um because your housing is paid for, your meals are paid for. So, and we were, I think, the first generation to, you know, have the first wave of smartphones, you know, and the iPod and and the handheld camera, you know, the digital cameras started coming out. And so I think we were the first generation of um, soldiers that were actually documenting the war ourselves, you know, because in Vietnam, it was like the most documented war um, of all time because the media and journalists were allowed there, mm-hmm. but the soldiers didn't have that uh, type of that uh, those electronics and equipment so my era we were the first with handheld cameras and GoPros so that's when you started seeing all the images and um, of war um, from firsthand accounts so uh, I just started recording I mean I didn't have any um, interest and experience Um, I didn't ever owned a camera before that wasn't like a Polaroid or disposable yeah, disposable cameras were pretty popular back then. Yeah, you know? like the Kodak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> just it. you buy with twenty, you know, a mm. roll of twenty photos, and and you go to get it developed. But so yeah, it was the first digital camera that I ever had, and I started taking photos. Obviously, just documenting of you know my time in Germany, Europe. You know, um, I was at the World Cup that year uh, in nice. two thousand six. Yeah. yeah, I remember the opening match. Lam, yeah. I think Lam scored a goal. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. Being in Germany for that was absolutely incredible. Awesome. Mm. But yeah, so and then when we went to war, I had that camera. It was a part of like my utility belt. It was a uh, part of it. So it was Gun, handy. Ammo yep. camera. Yeah, 100, <laughs> 120 rounds of ammunition, M4, water bottles, and my camera. It was, got, went with me on every single mission. So yeah, I would just uh, do like vlogs, I guess, and, and video diaries uh, at the time. And uh, I picked up, um, editing software, very like uh, new editing software at the time and learn how to use that. So yeah, that was my, um, I guess, first step into uh, becoming a filmmaker. You know, I, I didn't think that I would ever be in that industry. And uh, when I left uh, the military, I drove past the film school and I didn't even know they existed. So I, I went in and and yeah, started you that journey. You got into film school. Wait, just out of curiosity, though, the semester you spent at Met State before you enlisted into the military, what were you studying there? I was going to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, I was going to be a teacher. Interesting. I mean, I guess you can still do that now, like teach film or something at one point. Yeah, I guess I do do that sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, te- I teach filmmaking workshops uh, from time to time. I work for this uh, or- organization called Story Center, and uh, we teach three-day workshops to... Um, first-time filmmakers. Um, and we work with different uh, groups in the community. So we've done uh, workshops with uh, survivors of AIDS and trauma or military veterans. So I've actually led a couple workshops where um, you, t- you teach people how to tell a personal story 
And um, so it's uh, very therapeutic. And for some reason, uh, no one tells happy stories. I think uh, they use this workshop as like uh, as like therapy, you know, and people um, write about some, you know, life-changing moments, you know. Yeah, the um, military really seems like an organization where you're trained to listen, not necessarily to speak. Like if I can, you know, respectfully make that assumption. No, uh, yeah, definitely, man. I mean, that that's why there's so many people um, out here dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress is because uh, you're not dealt how, you're not taught how to dealt with those emotions. You know, um, when you're in the army, they train you to be a beast. You know, they train you to be a pit bull, and all, all your chants and, and cadences you are singing while you're working out or you're uh, training in the field are all, all about killing or death. You know, and just getting your mind right. So when you're there. You won't hesitate, you know. And when you're there, it's it's outrageous, you know. It's ludicrous how the conditions that you you live in, and and um, yeah, just uh, I guess all the death that you see, you know. But you lean on your brothers, you know, um, because it's like being in a dream and sometimes a nightmare, you know. And and I still can't believe that I I was there, you know. For a and, long it time. and it changes you forever, especially yeah, being there 15 months, you know, and there was good times there too, you know, again, you know, with your buddies, the camaraderie was high because it had to be, you know, that's all you really had. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, feelings and anger and sadness that you just pushed down because you had to go to work the next day. I mean, we, we had people that would die and we had a mission the next morning. That, yeah, no, no time to grie- grieve or mourn. Yeah. So, and I think that's the problem. Like, and I, I understand, I mean, you're in a war zone, you, you really have a task at hand. You, there is a mission. So, but unfortunately, I think you spend the rest of your life at the detriment proce- of, yeah, yeah. processing that that period of time. And and I just went for 15 months and, uh, you know, 10 years later, it's something that I think about all the time. Uh, I think I have more of a control on it um, than it has a control on me. But I have friends who, I mean, in a 10-year enlistment, I mean, they went to war five, six years of that 10 years, you know? So imagine that, like, so half of your enlistment, uh, yes, there was people that were there 20 years, retired, they were in a war 10 years, easy, wow. at least 10, 10 to 15, you know? Wow. I, if you ever do a, a podcast about like some of these seasoned war vets, I got a couple people that you need to talk to because they, okay. they spent like nine years in Iraq. God, that seems like a four hour podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a very long podcast. Yeah. Man. Man. So like I, I'm, I'm, I'm not American, but you know, I really have to just live in, in America. I can see how, you know, the extent of the military um, provides for certain freedoms. Is it always done ethically? Is it always done for the right reasons? Not really. At the end of the day, you know, capitalism drives a lot of things, but I can see how some of those efforts provide for some of the freedom that just both citizens and non-citizens like inhabitants are enjoying in the country. So let me just be the first to say, you know, I appreciate whatever service, uh, your service in the military when you were in the military. Um, But let's peel back the layers and, and get back to this cultural talk. Have you ever been to Guatemala or Mexico? Uh, which did you go to first? Uh, and how was your trip there? I've been to both and I went to Mexico first. Mm-hmm. I think just because... That's of, closer. Yeah, it's closer. And yeah, my my mom grew up in Mexico City and then they moved um, closer to the border in uh, Sonora, Sonora, Mexico. Uh, Yuma, Arizona is on the other side. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have family now today in both Yuma and, and Sonora. 
And so, yeah, we used to go there, you know, uh, maybe once a year as kids. Well, well, from when you were kids, so it wasn't foreign to you. It wasn't like, I'm sure, was it culture shock at all? Not not really. I mean, it, it for sure is the desert. Like you're driving on, you know, sandy roads, uh, visiting your family and it's fucking hot as hell down there, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't remember it being a, a culture shock thing. We always went there for, again, like, um, special events, you know? I mean, growing up in LA and everything, you're probably, you know, around enough Mexican people to, for it not to be that much of a thing. Yeah, exactly. And and it was family. So yeah, it was all good. So I have a lot of fond memories of some of those early trips going and yeah, it was always revolved around some kind of family event gathering. So it was always a good time. And we getting to Guatemala took a a couple more years to, to go down there. But yeah, maybe in my life I've been maybe like five or six times. And usually every time I go is for about a month. So, so yeah, I don't have that, you know, or at least back then I didn't have a special connection to Guatemala and, and uh, also didn't really interact too much with my Guatemalan side of the family. So your parents never like, did your, how much important was it for like, I'm speaking about this from like the African perspective, from like Nigerian perspective, Nigerian parents want their kids. They don't want their kids to be too Americanized. Like just like your name, Leon and Leone, like, you know, if you say that to a Nigerian parent, you're going back home for two years. Do you not use it? <laughs> Do you not say your name right? It's important for, for them to have their kids be in touch with the culture. Did you see more of that, like from your mom's side, taking to Mexico a lot of times or not really? Is that a thing in the Hispanic culture? In my family, you know, I got to be honest. No, I mean, I think my parents, first of all, they were working all the time, you know? So my dad to this day works seven days a week. You know, every single day he doesn't stop. You know, I, I really rarely saw him. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't um, spend too much time with my Guatemalan side of the family is because my dad was always uh, gone, you know, uh, working. So he didn't really take us over there too much. And and so I think every time someone asked me, oh, where are you from? I always say Mexican. That's like me, my default answer because I was raised more by my uh, Mexican side. But um. Yeah. And same with my mom, you know, she worked a lot. So we spent a lot of time in front of the TV, you know, our, the TV was our, our babysitter. babysitter got and so I think that's probably why I learned, we learned how to speak English, you know, um, the TV helped a lot um, for sure. And obviously I think that's how we integrated probably more into becoming Americans is by watching um, all these TV shows that we used to grow up with. So, but no, they, they never really said, like, I think because we already spoke Spanish, I think that was their only criteria. Like, mm, you got to speak Spanish, you know? <laughs> but anything else after that, like, you know, I guess you guys are American, really, you know, you, you guys are from here. And, and um, yeah, I think my dad calls me gringo sometimes to this day, you know? Uh, gringo, that's a white person. Like, I'm, that's American. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I actually just learned this because I spent a, a month in Guatemala last year. And uh, a gringo is anybody who's just from, the, fr- from the U.S. Or oh, just, uh, yeah, US. just oh, American. Yeah. Non-Hispanic. Yeah, ex- exactly. Much. American, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just an American. But... Yeah, so my dad calls me gringo sometimes because, That's you know. That's funny. That I, might be the title of this episode. Yeah, my dad calls me gringo. <laughs> I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, sure, it could be, man. That'd, that'd be funny. But yeah, man, so 
yeah, it's it's that's so it's always weird, I guess, thinking about you know, like even my identity uh, going riding this wave is uh, yeah. When people ask you where you're from, I think my story is pretty complicated. I think that's the same. It goes the same for most uh, Hispanic and Latino um, individuals because we are a melting pot, you know, and and a lot of us, you know, really don't have don't know where we you know, came from. We don't have like that family history that goes back, you know, generations and generations, you know, like I ask my dad, like, Hey, like, you know, what, did, what did, you know, grandpa do? Or, uh, or do you think we're, are, are we indigenous? Are we Spaniard? Like, where do you think we come from? And my dad doesn't know anything past his grandfather. You know what I'm saying? So but, but, a lot of but, our history is lost. You know, but at least you know where you're from. Like when I say where you're from, like the land where you came from, you can trace it back compared to like, you know, some other groups I've just been stuck in America for generations. I can't even like know what country to go back to. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know. But, yeah, no, I was just thinking too, like, you know, a lot of us, uh, or, you know, I, I want to speak, you know, just from personal experience. I think that uh, a lot of people in the Hispanic community are like, you know, socially unaware, you know, and that's like kind of the, it's, that's, you know, the tragic truth, I think. You know and, what? It's interesting you say that. I'm sorry to cut you short because this thing I'm doing is like, uh, you know, like Hispanic Heritage Month or whatnot. All the Latino and Hispanic people I've been reaching out to, like half of them, when I say, look, I'm doing this thing for my podcast, can I like recommend anyone? But they're like, what is? I like, I'm not Hispanic and I like kind of know, you know, that kind of thing. But Facts, man. I mean, I, I think if you ask like, you know, seven out of 10 Latino Hispanic people what month Hispanic Heritage Month is, I don't think you'll, most people know but you the, know, but, the, but this but the sense of community is so strong so is it safe to say that and at the risk of making like a huge generalization is like is it safe to say like the sense of community is so important but not as important as the sense of history is that a thing or i don't know it's hard man i mean uh, i think like latinos hispanics in this country you know i think we're invisible in, in many ways you know uh, we're definitely not represented, like our history is not taught in schools, you know, and a lot of uh, like uh, Hispanic Latinos who come to this country, like my parents, um, they come here to work, you know, and you can't really see them in, in our society because they're, you know, in the fields and on rooftops and construction, you know, yards or under a vehicle like my dad, my dad's a mechanic, you know. Um, so I, I think that we, we definitely fly under the radar um, and we're just hard workers, man. We're hard, like my family's hard workers and that's all they really think about. They came here to work and like, that's what they do. And they all have a connection back home, like, or a exit strategy, like my parents, like they always knew that they would come here and work 20 years and just go back home. And they're oh, actually, really? and they're in the process of doing that right now, you know? Really? That's interesting. Is that, yeah. uh, um, common or that's less like your family specifically? Yeah. I don't want to speak for anyone else. I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm just speaking from my personal experience, but I think, it, I think a lot of, um, Latinos, especially in the ones that I know and my family, they always had a one foot in and one foot out. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think maybe that's why like my dad, I mean, 
he, he doesn't speak English, you know, like he, he can't speak English and, and, you know, he's in a vehicle. He doesn't exporter. like to speak English. He doesn't like to speak English. And he's English. been here since Elvis, since the seventies. Since the seventies. Got it. Since the seventies. And I don't know if he's uh, embarrassed or not feel comfortable. And uh, I don't think it's embarrassment. I think there's a system for you to function as a Spanish speaker comfortably. Like any store I go to, if there's a sign for an exit or whatnot, there's like English and Spanish. Yeah. So it's like, you can function comfortably. You don't have to learn English. Me, you, what boy if I come from, you know. You, you don't. And, you know, in the community where my dad works, it's 100% Spanish speaking, you know? So he never really had to learn, you know? He caters to Spanish speaking only customers. You know, so in America, <laughs> you know, um, but that's, I guess, the beauty of this place that, you know, you can come here from any, you know, where in the world and you will find pockets of people who, you know, speak like you and, you know. It's so, supposed to be the United States. It's yeah. the United States. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, where are we going with this? I don't yeah, remember. No, just, uh, you know, just, just talking shit. Um, the, the purpose of the podcast is really casual. And I know we got derailed. Yeah, we got derailed a lot. Yeah. There, but, you know, just kind of like wrapping up, you know, you are going to Guatemala in a couple of days. Uh, from now, you'll probably be there for a couple of months. Uh, we're working on a project together. And hopefully, like our podcast listeners, we can expatiate on that as we go deeper into the project, maybe sometime towards the end of the year. Uh, but just what are you expecting without going into like too more detail, just from like the cultural side, like what do you hope to do? What new experiences do you hope to like um, be part of in, in Guatemala? And, you know, since this is more or less going to be like a family trip, like a bunch of your family are going, like what do you guys have in store? It's kind of thing. Yeah. Um, let's see. Where do we begin? So, I went to Guatemala last year for the first time in a decade and I had like a really bad 2019. Like it was maybe the worst year of my life, you know? Um, so I went into like a deep depression and I had a lot of uh, mental health uh, issues uh, that I was dealing with. So I actually went to Guatemala like because I thought that that was a place that I needed to be to recover because I felt like I was estranged from that side of my, um, I guess my upbringing and I wanted to reconnect with my roots. But at the same time, and maybe this is like a sneak peek of what our podcast is about, uh, a pretty serious crime happened um, to my family in Guatemala. So uh, my family vowed never to return because of this. And at the time during my mental health, you know, bout, I, I felt, I didn't feel anything actually. I didn't feel anything besides maybe fear. And I thought about going to the place that I feared the most to kind of feel alive again. And this was Guatemala, you know, the place that um, my dad's from and the place that I'm estranged from. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't returned since 2009 because I had a gun pulled on me. And then a few years later is when that um, crime happened against uh, my family member, uh, you know, and well, it happened to my father. So, and that's what the the podcast will be about. And I'm actually working on a documentary about this crime that happened um, in Central America, but actually um, there was a connection here in um, Colorado. So there's a connection to the crime in Colorado. 
here in Colorado. And um, so, yeah, I vowed, I vowed never to return to Guatemala. And after I went through that mental health bout, I decided to go to the place that, you know, I, I feared the most to feel alive again. And I was on the doorstep of where this serious crime happened to my father. And I, w I went there to, you know, recover and heal from what I had just experienced. But at the same time, I was seeking closure to this crime that took place. So I, um, that to Guatemala is a, I don't know, it's a, complex place and it's um for my family it, it's caused a lot of trauma but I decided to make a documentary ab about this story and I'm going there next week for a month to try to finish my documentary and I think I'm gonna go there to capture some of the last pieces and interview uh, eyewitnesses and some of the authorities involved um, in the uh, in this case and yeah hopefully when I come back and see you uh, we'll uh, keep piecing this podcast together because I think that's uh, the the goal right now so without giving too much away uh, I guess we're working on a true crime podcast yeah, and it's such an interesting story. I, you know, I, I can't wait to, you know, let our listeners, obviously the listeners of Cultural Class will have like a sneak peek to it, but, you know, really hope to be as authentic as possible with Elfie's story and, you know, with as much respect to his family as we possibly can, but still maintaining that authenticity to the story. So uh, you guys should just watch out, um, you know, early 2021, see see what happens. And uh, yeah, last question, like, uh, I mean, uh, what are your, like, now you, your dad and mom, like, had this experience in Mexico, came to the U.S., you pretty much grew up, like, American and Guatemalan and Mexican. Your kids now, what do you think their connection to Guatemala and Mexico will be? Because they'll be, like, third generation, like, they, do you see, or I guess it depends, right, on a variety of factors like who you end up getting married to, where you raise them, all that stuff. But how much of like the Latino, the Hispanic culture do you think you can pass on to your kids from what you got from your parents, that kind of thing? Hopefully I can preserve, you know, what was taught to me and and build upon that, you know. Uh, I, I definitely, whoever my kids are, my future wife will be, I do plan on taking them to Guatemala and, and Mexico, you know? Uh, and yeah, I think the most important part is to maybe conserve the language. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of uh, kids who are born in the States um, are, don't know or don't, um, aren't taught Spanish. And I, I can say that my nephew, um, he's, he's nine, he doesn't speak Spanish. And so I think it only takes one generation uh to, to lose it um so it's it's an easy one to lose and i think if you lose that then that also maybe will prevent him from wanting to go to a place like mexico and guatemala you know i, I do know some you know second third generation uh latinos uh, here my friends who they ha they've never been and they're scared to go because of what they hear on the news and and that's a shame, you know, that's a shame. It's the same and, thing in Nigeria, also the same thing. Like if you're so far removed and you've heard all these stories, like you don't want to go because of the perception, uh, yeah. that kind of thing. It, exactly. And 
Yeah, I mean, and I'm all, I was almost a victim of that too. You know, like when I go back, everyone clearly knows that I'm not from there. I have an accent. I have a weird accent because of my. I while, used to, while you're speaking Spanish, yeah, you have while an I'm, yeah, while I'm speaking Spanish, like people can't place it because I have this mix of like Guatemalan and Mexican slang, and you know, mm-hmm. so uh, it's a mess. But yeah, ho- hopefully that you know you know, my future kids will learn Spanish because I think me taking them there and, and showing them our culture and, you know, introducing them to some of our heroes, you know, like even uh, in cinema, you know, uh, I grew up watching a lot of, you know, Spanish films and some of the, you know, classic actors that I'd like to, you know, pass that along to and some of our, you know, heroes who fought for social justice here in this country. And so I think that's maybe what Hispanic Heritage Month is, is to at least acknowledge all the efforts of our, you know, elders. Yep, and that's exactly what it is because a bunch of Hispanic countries got independence on like September 15th and through like October 15th, uh, a lot of countries. So that's why yeah, we but, celebrate the month. Yeah, and, and but I think... We definitely have a lot more work to do because we just said a lot of people don't know what month Hispanic Heritage Month is, you know, and we are under the radar and we are underrepresented even in like TV. You know, there's no leading Latino actors in you know, any of these big Hollywood movies at, at the at the moment, you know, and even me while working on sets, I'm usually the only colored person on the movie set, you know, and I've mm-hmm. worked on some decent size sets like, you know, Men in Black International and uh, Hobbs and Shaw and others, other ad, uh, commercials and ads. And there's not that many people of color working in the film industry. And that's already been a topic of discussion that's, you know, being debated now. So, you know, hopefully that, that changes, but um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Elvis, I want to thank you so much like for coming on the podcast, uh, for f- finding time to come speak to me before you leave uh, on your trip. Uh, just for clarity, for listeners who are listening, Hispanic Heritage Month is uh, September 15th to October 15th every year. I'm not sure if it's celebrated globally or if it's just the U.S., but I know it was started, I think, in the U.S. Uh, but yeah, uh, so, you know, in honor of that, we're just trying to have uh, people of Hispanic descent on the podcast throughout the month of October. So Elvis, can you take it away by speaking some Spanish? You want to say thank you for being on the podcast, like listen to cultural class, see you guys later, whatever you want to say. <laughs> I'll put you on the spot there. <laughs> well, muchas gracias por escuchar culture class. Y que Dios... <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, me llamo Elvis León. Y fue un placer conocer Nusa y por favor todos este uh, subscribe to Culture Class Podcast on all the platforms and social media, blah, blah, blah. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot how to say that piece. No, that's fine. Well, no, let well, me give you one more. What's podcast you. in Spanish? Pod, podcast. 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 With a podcast. Accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Let, let me give you one more. This is the one. This is the one. All right. Let's okay. go. Okay. Uh, Bueno, uh, muchas gracias por escuchar este episodio de Culture Class. Uh, me llamo Elvis León y gracias um, por todo el apoyo y, y gracias a Nusa por invitarme. All right. I had pollo there. What's, what's it about chicken? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. All right. No, but yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk soon. 
Yeah, most definitely. And as always, you guys can follow Culture Class everywhere. It's Culture Class Podcast on social media. Visit our website, cultureclasspodcast.com. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. And tell us what you think about the episode. Use the hashtag Hispanic Heritage Month. Reach out to your Latino friends or make new ones and find out a little bit about your culture. Till next time, guys. Have a good one. <laughs>